May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Most of you have heard by now that I was not brought up in the Episcopal Church, that I am, in fact, an escaped Pentecostal. And not just any kind of Pentecostal either. No, the independent Pentecostal church that I grew up in was part of a tiny sect within the larger world of Pentecostalism. And the sect that my family belonged to called themselves the Apostolic Pentecostals, or more descriptively, the Oneness Pentecostals. Oneness, that's O-N-E-N-E-S-S, as in one, not three. They proclaimed the oneness of God and explicitly rejected the doctrine of the Trinity as an unbiblical corruption of true apostolic belief. Well, as you may know, today is Trinity Sunday. When I was in seminary, everyone joked about how much they dreaded pulling preaching duty on Trinity Sunday. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Explain that three is one and one is three? Like if you just keep saying that slowly enough, as if to a child, it will somehow eventually make sense. Or maybe you should recount the historical context in which the doctrine of the Trinity developed. Or use a chart outlining the major decisions of the seven ecumenical councils. Well, as you can see, I don't have any charts with me today. In part, this is because I don't think that you can explain the Trinity. I don't think that you can explain God, for that matter. And perhaps more importantly, I don't think it actually matters that you can't explain God logically, precisely. How could your finite mind fully comprehend a God that is infinite? Now, this is the real breach that I have with the church that I grew up in. For them, what you believed and how you believed it mattered a lot. If you believed the right things in just the right way, then God would have favor on you and save you. If you believed the wrong things, then God would punish you. Your relationship with God depended on right belief, on intellectual orthodoxy, on what happened in your head. But I have come to think that what really matters is what happens in your heart. Now, certainly in our gospel text for today, Nicodemus, the learned Jewish Pharisee, cannot wrap his head around what Jesus was trying to teach him about the kingdom of God. He can't understand. He keeps taking Jesus literally when Jesus is speaking metaphorically. John tips us off that Nicodemus is a bit slow when he tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. This man, Nicodemus, is a person who is in the dark. He's stumbling around. He doesn't get it. He can't see. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born from above. The Greek phrase translated here could actually be translated two ways. It could be translated 
from above, or it could be translated born again. And immediately, Nicodemus is trying to picture how one might go about entering the womb for a second time in order to be born again. But Jesus, of course, is speaking on another level. The new birth that Nicodemus needs is a birth from above, a birth of a heavenly state of mind, a birth of the Spirit. It's a birth of a a new way of seeing things, a, a new birth of personal transformation. And this new birth is made possible because God's spirit is blowing. Nicodemus just needs to open up and breathe it in. Jesus ends by telling Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Presumably, if Nicodemus could only attain this new state of mind, this personal transformation, that he would be able to understand what Jesus is saying. He'd be able to understand the truth about Jesus and believe in him and so live this eternal life that Jesus is speaking about. Now, just like Nicodemus got tripped up over the difference between being born from above and being born again, we have to be careful with a couple of words that Jesus uses here. The words believe and eternal life. We've already established that Jesus is speaking metaphorically in this passage rather than literally. But we've really got to dig into the context and meaning of belief and eternal life if we're going to understand what Jesus is really saying here. In our post-enlightenment world, we've reduced belief to a head activity. You believe what you know to be intellectually true. Two plus two equals four. Scientific evidence is reliable when it's based on results of of rigorous experiments. News is something that's fact-checked. History is based on solid research. But in the pre-Enlightenment world, belief was a much different kind of knowledge, a broader category of knowledge. To believe primarily meant to place your trust, your faith, your heart, into a cause or a person. It had as much to do with your heart as with your head. And this is the kind of belief that Jesus means when he talks about believing in the Son of God. He means trusting, having faith in. I would go even further and suggest that Jesus isn't as concerned about what you think of the person of the Son of God so much as whether you believe in That is, whether you put your trust into his message and teaching. And then there's that phrase, eternal life. John uses the phrase eternal life over and over in his gospel to describe the life of the kingdom of God. And it's a mistake to think that eternal life is something that begins after you die. John does not use eternal life as a substitute for the afterlife. Rather, For John, eternal life begins here, now, today. Eternal life is a way of describing the abundant life that God promises to his people, the abundant life of the kingdom of God that we pray each week will come on earth as it is in heaven. If Nicodemus could be born from above, he could see his whole life in a new light. All the things that he believed about the Jewish priesthood and the temple 
and about the Roman Empire and his place in it, everything would begin to look different. He could then have given his trust to Jesus' radical teaching. His life would have been transformed. But it's hard to change your whole outlook on life, everything you know and trust, and start to live your life in a new, radical way. Nicodemus resisted the blowing of God's Spirit, and frankly, so do we most of the time. What would you be willing to give up or to change if God's Spirit was blowing you in a new direction? Jesus is inviting us today to open up our hearts and our lives to be willing to let God's Spirit blow through us and change us, transform us. Now, for a short aside, you might note that although this is Trinity Sunday, we haven't talked much about the Trinity this morning. In fact, our readings don't mention the Trinity at all. At least, they don't use that word, although they do refer to God, to the Father, to Jesus, and to the Spirit. The word Trinity isn't recorded until the late 2nd century by the theologian Theophilus of Antioch, and a robust defense of the idea of the Trinity only first appeared in the early 3rd century by the theologian Tertullian. There followed, after that, lots of arguments between different churches and theologians about how exactly the three persons of the Trinity are related to one another, and things weren't settled completely until the late 4th century at the Council of Constantinople. Now, my feeling about all of these attempts at describing God as Trinity are that they are trying to do something that is ultimately impossible. They're trying to literalize and put into words and explain something for the human mind that is inherently unknowable. They're trying to say what the inner working of the life of God is. But then, I suppose that given my background, I am predisposed to be a little skeptical of the doctrine of the Trinity. For me, the concept of Trinity is best used as a tool for contemplating God's mystery, a kind of Zen koan of Christian mysticism. And if that concept and idea of meditating on that idea brings you closer into God's presence, then by all means, use it. But friends, if it trips you up sometimes or gives you a headache, I don't think that God would mind much if you focus on other aspects of God's life and other ways of knowing God. I don't think it's an accident that the gospel reading for Trinity Sunday is about how much God loves the world. Arguing about what God is like inside, how God relates to God, the first person to the second person to the third person, all of that is an interesting intellectual pastime. But what matters, what you can really see and talk about is how God relates to us, how we experience God. However God's love operates internally, there's too much of it to be contained, and therefore it spills out into the world, in the person of Jesus, and in the blowing of God's Holy Spirit. Ultimately, I think this is the aspect of the Trinity that we are called to imitate, 
However much we love and support one another inside and here in the church, the point of the love in here is that it creates more than we put into it. There's something extra left over that is just waiting to spill out into the world around us. And when that happens, when the love goes out from here and into the world, friends, that is how the whole world will be born again. Amen.